This is your last one. It is of um, of year one. The last time I annoy you in this format. Well, there's going to be very minimal changes to the format. But... There's going to be minimal changes. There will be a few changes. I'm excited about this, actually, because we've recorded our new intro-outro, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We, we had a lovely evening doing that. We did. It was very fun. We got the uh, ukes out. We, we got some... Oh, yeah. We got some new words said. Oh, it's all going off. I tell you, year two is going to be exciting. <laughs> Based purely on a new 13-second sting intro. Well, no, because we've also added Ollie and Ange, haven't we, to our we, permanent we, well, co-hosts. We say permanent. I mean... They've said. They've, yeah, that's they've, it now. They've not signed a contract. Their word is their bond. I don't see a ring on that finger. We have a verbal agreement. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story begins shortly after the Glorious Revolution, which was when William of Orange was invited to rule the country. No, I don't know when that is. 1680s, darling. Thank you. You could have just said, this story starts in the 1680s and we could be both further on by now. But now you know that there was a revolution during that decade as well. For what? Why? Because, essentially, we wanted a Protestant... Revolution no, they wanted a... No. They wanted a Protestant... I want to change the world. They wanted a Protestant king. <laughs> no, just I'm not to, again. <laughs> just to sort out the years of flip-flopping between the two different sides. Because you'd have a Catholic monarch, and then they'd, you know, prosecute all of the Protestants. Mm-hmm. And then... You flip and have a Protestant monarch and they mm-hmm. prosecute all the Catholics. And I think mm-hmm. people just wanted continuity of just, you know, like one religious um, group being persecuted. Right, so we've got William Orange. William of Orange, yes. Of he, Orange. Was, he, was, he was from the Low Countries. Cornwall. Holland. The Low Countries. The Netherlands. Right, okay. Why do, you, why do you think they call him William of Orange? The clue's in that. I have literally no idea. What country do you associate with Orange? Spain. Oh, my God. Okay, All right. <laughs> when the Dutch national football team play, what colour is every part of the kit? I don't know because I don't watch football. It's orange. Right. Orange is the Dutch colour. It just is. Every day is a school day. Let's start again, shall we? This story begins shortly after the Glorious Revolution. Right. In 1680s, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. And your three words, probably the last three words you will ever receive from me. Thank the Christ. Go on. Because this is getting cut after next week's episode. Woohoo! Letters. Scabs. Scabs. Exile. Okay. Are you intrigued by those three? No. Especially not scabs. Okay. Mary Pierpont was born in the family home on May 15th, 1689. Mm -hmm. I say that literally because that home was known as Home Hall. It's in Nottinghamshire and it's a grade one listed manor house. Amazing. She's quite close to Nottingham itself, actually. Mm. As you can imagine, that means she wasn't born into poverty. With a last name like Pierpont, I would not have assumed for one minute. You know, we're not talking brown. We're not talking... Well, round us, it's Rimmer's rights and balls, isn't it? Round us, it's... Well, 
around where we used to live. Yeah. It was rumours, rights and bulls. Yeah, exactly. So they're like the super common names. Pierpont, no. I don't think I've ever met a Pierpont. No. Well, she was the firstborn child of Evelyn Pierpont and Mary Fielding, Aww. who were both comfortably upper class. And as such, she was... Evelyn? Up- yeah. Her father was called Evelyn. It's a strong man's name. That's her choice. Okay. Wow. He, I don't think he chose it. I think this was... <laughs> No. <laughs> chosen for him. There are some names in this. You won't be laughing at Evelyn. Oh, God. Honestly. Um, yeah, so she was almost guaranteed to have a privileged life of ease. Mm-hmm. There was a slight inconvenience when she was three, as mm-hmm. her mother died. Oh. Yeah. And in well, the in- inconvenience, tragedy. Well, in the intervening three years, she'd had another three children. So she'd been... Jesus, wet. She'd been a hard-working woman up until the day she died. But luckily... There was another strong female lady in the family. Right. Of a womanly persuasion. Her paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Pierpont, who took over looking after the children. Very good. If you're wondering where her father was and why Evelyn wasn't taking over looking after the children, he was busy networking with the other peers of the realm at the exclusive Kit Kat Club. I thought you were going to say um, networking as in womanising other women's. No, no. He was at the Kit Kat Club. Okay. Uh, and although it did indeed take its name from an item of... <laughs> was he taking a break? Well, I'm saying, <laughs> while, he, while the Kit Kat Club did take its name from a food item... No! Uh, it was a mutton pie rather than a chocolate bar. A mutton pie called a Kit Kat? No, apparently the guy who made it was called Kit something or other. Um, and the nickname for his... Kitty Kit. His mutton pies that he sold at his um, pub was the Kit Kat. Wow. So they called themselves the Kit Kat Club. To confuse things further, mm-hmm. the Kit Kat Club was also known as the Order of the Toast. Of course. Their main function appears to have been nominating and then toasting to the health of the women that they deemed as the reigning beauties of the day. Which was very mm-hmm. important work for, you know, the upper classes, as you can imagine. So basically yeah. they they discussed over what I can only assume is lots of drink, which ladies were the most beautiful and once they reached their decision, they all had more drink to oh celebrate that they'd God. come to a consensus. Sounds like a very old-fashioned love island, really, doesn't it? Only no one seemed to be getting their end away, because this was just the men sitting there and talking about these things. Or is it more, a bit more like hot or not? It's a bit hot or not, it seems. Okay. Uh, to be fair to Evelyn, though, in spite of his important work, he did spend at least one evening of his entire life with his daughter when she was eight Probably stuck for a babysitter, he decided it would be appropriate to take his daughter to the Kit Kat Club with him. Oh my God. Mm. Okay, that's a a move. She would later recall it as a perfect evening when she was passed from knee to knee of all these peers of the realm and toasted as a beauty by each of them in turn. Oh no, that's a bit creepy now. I know, but apparently all innocent. Okay. And she, she loved it, but she also loved feeling special and it gave her this sense that she was special, which it would when, you know, most of the people with Sir before their name mm-hmm. are bouncing you on the knee and saying that you're the best thing they've ever seen. You're so pretty. Mm. But yeah. amazingly, her father wasn't cut out to be a full-time parent. And this was made abundantly clear. The was following it? year, when Mary's grandmother, Elizabeth, died. Oh, no. And Mary was put in the care of a governess. Mm. Her father didn't think to arrange for Mary to get an education as he... He wasn't really sure what constituted an education for girls, as we will find out later. Okay. But luckily for Mary, 
before she died, her grandmother had taught her to read to a high level. Mm. And the family home, because, again, poshness, Mm -hmm. just so happened to contain a massive library. Well, they all do, don't they? So she went full on Matilda. Amazing. uh, And just started providing her own education in lieu. Well, if you can read, Mm. you can learn. Oh, yeah. And if you can read, you can learn to read because she not only read all the English books, she also taught herself French and Latin. Oh, my God. Which very, very few women knew because they weren't supposed to be taught it. She'd actually found a Latin grammar dictionary and sort of squirreled it away, hidden, and would get it out. The only person I know who can speak Latin is mum. And I think I've mentioned that previous in one of the episodes. You know, you take Mom it back a couple of hundred years. Yeah. You take it back a couple of hundred years, though, and if she'd learnt it, she probably would have been burned as a witch. Yeah. Witch. witch, witch, knowing how to read the laws of the land and such things. How dare you? Has Without your dangling you? genitals, <laughs> have a brain in your head. How dare you, baby machine? Because that was the thing. You know, a, a couple of hundred years before Mary's time. All the laws were written in uh, Latin and possibly French, but weren't written in common English. So, you know, you'd have somebody telling you what the law was, but you couldn't go and look it up yourself. No, you couldn't check it out. No, no. no. And even when it was read out sort of, you know, to uh, town meetings to the townsfolk, it would be read out in French and Latin. It wouldn't be, Mm. you know, so you just had to take the sheriff's word for what it said. Fair enough. Yeah, it sounded lovely and all. What does it mean? Taxes are going up. Oh, Okay. Oh, well. But yes, so not only had she taught herself Mm -hmm. French, Latin, she'd also written at least two collections of prose and poems. Oh, I don't like poetry. Well, she herself would admit they weren't particularly good. No poetry is. But they they must have been... It's a very sweeping statement, but I just don't like it. They must have been, um, you know, at least competent because during one of his very brief visits to see his daughter her father was so impressed by this work ethic he finally got round to organising some formal lessons bloody hell supplementing Mary's own curriculum how, how old was she now? Uh, this would have been when she was 13, 14 Jesus Christ so what he laid on for her Italian oh nice another, yeah. another language and three weekly lessons from a master meat carver an essential skill for a teenage girl, as I'm sure you'll agree. A meat carver. A master meat carver, so that she could confidently carve any cut of meat at table. If you want to confident, confidently cut a bird, all you need to do is watch Fanny Craddock um, at Christmas. I actually believe will... it was Fanny Craddock who was the master meat carver <laughs> that he uh, employed. Because <laughs> uh, that woman can uh, hack a bird apart in about three seconds. It's uh, It's a feat. It's a skill. It's a skill. <laughs> Amazingly, though, mm-hmm. it was her grasp of Latin and not her ability to debone a fillet that drew the attention of her first suitor when she was aged 20. Okay, well, at least for once, a suitable age for a suitor. Go on. No, no, she was 20. Yeah, I know, but like, usually oh, what, it's she just wasn't like 12. You know, she wasn't 12 or ah, yeah. younger. Yes, yes. No, she was she was 20. Yeah. Uh, the would-be husband, though, was the older brother of Mary's friend, Anne Wortley Montague. He was called Edward. Edward Wortley He was 11 Montague. years older than Mary. Okay, that's he not was, too bad. He was handsome in a kind of... Handsome in a not particularly noticeable way. You'd say he was handsome, but you wouldn't pick him out of a lineup specifically. Okay. You know, kind of generic kind of handsome. Okay. Uh, and he was an MP and a successful businessman. All right, okay. Money, money, money. Well, 
such was the rarefied air that Mary's father enjoyed mm. um, that he would have been seen as a step down. Jesus Christ. This MP businessman, he was a bit rough, so they had to keep the budding romance a bit of a secret. <gasps> Edward, mm. to show that he wanted to woo, how do you woo? How do you woo? Well, Edward sent Mary a copy of Alexander the Great's Campaigns in Asia Minor, in Latin, naturally, as a token of his love. And they continued a secret courtship using poor old Anne as the intermediary. Goodness me. So he would he would sort of ask Anne to put something in her letter and then Mary would ask Anne to just pass on a message or put something like, well, I think you know that that scoundrel's not as fine as the Mr Montague. Oh my goodness. Uh, and it, it sort of went on that way so that oh if God. the letters were intercepted, it wouldn't be immediately obvious what was going oh on. Oh my God. So poor old Very Anne. Very cloak and dagger all this. She was in on it and she was okay to be the third wheel in this relationship. Oh, but bless her. then, like all the women in Mary's life, Anne went ahead and died at an inconvenient time. Oh no. Yeah. So, so sad. The avenue to speak to Mr. Wortley Montague absolutely slammed shut. As her coffin was lowered into the ground, so were her prospects of being able to chat up this saucy MP. Why? Because then she'd have to do it, send the letters directly to him. Yes. At risk of being caught by her father, who would... He's never there! Who would look down on the marriage. He's never there! They have lots of servants, and these servants could definitely pass it on. Because they're the ones who are getting the post in the morning. Why would you do that? Because you work for the father and not the daughter, and you want to keep your job. So shocked. Or she could get off her ass and go post it herself. She was very shocked, though, when she received a letter from Edward directly. (gasps) And it scandalised her so much that she responded to him directly on the 21st of March, 1710, by saying that she was not capable of loving him. Ending the letter... And I quote, You must never expect another. I resolve against all correspondence of this kind. Oh my God. My resolutions are seldom made and never broken. She's shutting him down. Whew, now. This was the start of a lengthy courtship by letter. Oh my God. And Mary would often (laughs) threaten to never write again. Oh, it's fun in japes now, isn't it? But she kept going and kept going over Mm -hmm. three years until finally, almost inevitably, Mary's father accidentally discovered the situation. Oh, no. He found one of the correspondences. Oh no! And I know. Well, what... after three years, that's a lot of letters to find. Yeah, <laughs> just a stack. It's just a stack. Some... Usually tied by some lacy ribbon in an airing cupboard somewhere. Mm. Well, in Georgian England, because mm. I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does it matter if Daddy doesn't give approval? Mm-hmm. Mm. We can just do what we want. Well, she's not. She's twenty-three now. Mm. But in Georgian England, marriage was primarily a financial transaction amongst the upper classes, with the husband receiving a dowry from the father in return for agreeing to ensure that they would financially provide for their new wife and any children who came along by putting money into trust for them. And this was called settling or a settlement. Mm -hmm. Mary's father, he agreed to pay a dowry for her, but he demanded that £10,000 be settled onto the firstborn son of the marriage as a means of ensuring that Mary would be provided for. Now, Edward, although an MP and businessman, he couldn't afford £10,000. Gosh. As he didn't have access to that kind of cash. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't a Marquis, 
like Mary's father was. Oh, gosh. Right. Um, and it seemed that Mary's dad already knew that perfectly oh, well. No. And was just looking to get rid of a man that he felt was beneath his daughter. So the dad acted like he was negotiating in good faith. Yeah, but he wasn't. And when Edward started negotiating, he tried to turn this to Mary into, look, I've given him a reasonable proposal and he's now dickering over money. If he loved you, he'd just agree to it. And it caused lots of misunderstandings and there were lots more, I'll never write to you again. And they actually didn't speak at all for a year or so. Ooh. Yeah. That was when Mary was told by her dad that she need be heart sick no longer. Oh, no. Because he'd lined up someone for her. Someone that would, you know, make her heart sing again. Right. It was shortly after she found out that her new husband-to-be was called Clotworthy Skeffington. Jesus wept. Wortley Montague. Skeffington. No, at least, at least Wortley Montague. What's yeah. he called? At least Wortley Montague. It's Edward Wortley Montague. Yeah. This man's full name... Clotworthy Skeffington. Clotworthy. First name, last name. Two parents looking down lovingly at their child. Oh, he looks like a Clotworthy. Yes, and then... Clotworthy. And then nobody... Skeffington. Nobody. All the time. Yeah, just questioned it at all. They're like, yes, yes, he does. He does look like a Clotworthy. Yes. Well, well chosen. Just don't fire me. <laughs> Ask the butler. Do you think it's a good name? Yes, sir. Uh, it is a very distinguished name. So, yeah, it was shortly after she found out that he was called Clotworthy Skeffington uh, that she wrote a further letter to Edward after the long, you know, sort of pause in correspondence, mm-hmm. begging him to elope with her. She did warn him, to be fair, that she would arrive with only a nightgown and a petticoat. That's all you'll get with me. Gosh. Which sounds like a proposal more than it does, sir. Doesn't it? I'm coming, just in me nightgown and a petticoat. And he was going, oh, she's keen. Exactly. He's probably thinking, well, hey, I'm in. And do you know what? It was good enough for Edward. And they got married on the 23rd of August, 1712. Aww. Happy days. With, you know, no, that's it. Dad's not interested anymore. I bet he's not. Now as Lady Mary Wortley Montague... Wortley Montague. Mary moved to London and had a son also called Edward. Oh, I hate it when they do that. So there's Edward Jr. She became a darling at court. She loved by everybody in the royal circle, which meant she had huge influence, basically because she was a very witty woman Mm. who was great at a withering put down. uh, And she would eventually butt heads and actually run rings around a famous satirist of the day called Alexander Pope. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Right. She was, you know, whip quick with a comeback. Mm-hmm. It's, it's essentially like having a stand-up comedian just knocking around and occasionally just chipping into conversations. Every, everybody loved her for that. Uh, so that's what she was up to. Her husband, Edward, he was busy climbing the greasy pole in politics and government, becoming oh. first a commissioner for the treasury and then, in 1716, an ambassador. Oh, ambassador. Yes. Did he crack was... out the... Arkwright. right? Ferrero Rocher's. <laughs> Do you know, I'd written a joke about Ferrero Rocher and you beat me to it. <laughs> I win. So I won't even tell that joke now, even though I spent... I win. ...literally minutes writing it. <laughs> no, it's, it has nothing to do with Ferrero Rocher. Oh, but that's very sad. Shortly after be- 
being made an ambassador, he was given his first commission to work in Constantinople. Now Istanbul was Constantinople. Constantinople. Uh, It was, you know, because he was a new ambassador, it was quite a quick job as all he had to do was negotiate an end to the Austro-Turkish war that had just kicked off earlier in the year. Yeah, only. So, you know, it's it's nothing, no big. First job, just go over there. Stop it. Yeah, make them stop. Stop stop it now. Yes, it's it's mucking with our trade. Mm -hmm. We can't have that. The family arrived in Constantinople and Mary threw herself into exploring the culture of the women that she found there. As the wife of an ambassador, she had unrestricted access to the society women of the Ottoman Empire and wrote extensively about their customs in letters to her friends back in England, including the amazingly named Lady Rich. Was she rich? Oh, yes, she was a lady. Was she Lady Richie Rich? No, she was just Lady Rich. But, you know, it, it, it kind of... It's like um, family... Happy families. Happy families, isn't oh, it? Oh, like Master Bun the Baker's Boy and yeah. Mr Cosmo the Conjurer. Yeah. Lady Rich. Lady Rich, the heiress. The collected writings would be published as Letters from Turkey and gave one of the most accurate descriptions of Ottoman society to that point. Gosh. But the most important thing that Lady Mary witnessed was not the fantastical fashions that she described in vivid detail mm. or the naked female-only Turkish baths that she visited frequently. Oh, I say, yes. how racy. I know. No, it was the practice of variolation. You're going to have to tell me more, I don't know. Good. I'm glad you don't know because I have a, a hefty explanation here. Oh, can we just cut it back a bit? In the beginning... Oh, Jesus No, wept. in the early 1700s, smallpox yeah. was killing approximately 400,000 Europeans every year. Christ. It was also responsible for over a third of all causes of blindness Mm -hmm. and killed over 80% of infected children. God. In short, it was a terrible disease that could afflict people from any social class. And indeed, five monarchs in Europe would die in that century of the disease. So it didn't care if you were a king. It didn't care if you were... I mean, don't get me wrong. The poor died in much higher numbers. Yeah, well, yes. But it could get you. It could get you, even if you were a king. Well, you know, this was back in the day when it was thought that holding nice smells under your nose would protect you, because we were still on the miasma theory and the four humours at this point. We were, I, it was I early medicine. I still hold that a nice smell's better than a dirty smell. Well, yeah, that's that's one of the things about the miasma the- theory. It makes sense, mm-hmm. because a lot of things that would make you ill smell bad. Yeah. But it's not the smell itself that makes you ill. It's the, no. It's the bacteria. No, I don't no. know. Um, <laughs> There's a couple of smells that make, it you, might make you sick. It might make you vomit. It's yeah. not going to make you sick in the sense of, you know, clinically sick. Okay. Um, Mary herself had contracted smallpox the year before travelling to Constantinople. Um, she became Gosh. bedridden and oh, was no. gravely ill at one point. And even though she did recover, she suffered permanent disfigurement to her face. Oh, but that was better than what happened to her brother who died of the disease three years earlier. So it was reasonable that Mary was particularly fearful of the disease mm-hmm. and what it what it had the potential to do. Yeah. So, variolation. Variolation. This was a practice that had been developed in China 200 years earlier mm-hmm. and had been slowly, slowly moving creeping. westwards. Yeah. yeah, creeping. Uh, it involved taking scabs from a person infected with the smallpox virus... <gasps> And rubbing them into a scratch on an uninfected person to oh induce my. a milder infection God. that resulted in immunity. Uh, there was still a chance of death from the infections induced by variolation, but this was approximately 1% death rate 
compared with the death rate of between 30 and 60% if you caught it in the wild. So it, it vastly improved your chances of surviving the disease if you were given it in what as close as they could get to, you know, sort of like a controlled setting. I get that, but I've had to cover my, my mouth because it's made me feel a bit sick. You're going to have to stop covering your mouth, though. I'm going to stop covering my mouth, but... Yeah. Well, Mary, she didn't have that reaction. She was impressed by the procedure. I bet she was. And the reports that thousands of people were variolated each autumn with practically no ill effects. Because she, you know, saw the woman do this and she said, well, how often does this happen? And the woman just went, oh, we do thousands. We do thousands of these. This is this yeah, but is normal. Does it actually work? Yeah, it it does because right. you're in, you're introducing a small amount of the the you know of the virus, and so long as your body is able to tolerate that small amount and develop a, you know a resistance to it, mm-hmm. then you have that resistance built in. Mm. I mean, we've done an episode on Edward Jenner. Yeah, that's essentially what he did. The only difference was he used cowpox, which was yeah. benign, mm-hmm. to get the same um, antibodies made. Mm to sort it out um but yeah mary was impressed Mm. she was so impressed in fact that she got in contact with the embassy surgeon charles maitland and she asked him if he wouldn't mind performing this newfangled uh, variolation procedure on her own four-year-old son edward jr wow edward as far as we know was the first english person to undergo variolation and he thankfully was one of the 99 percent who didn't die oh god i was waiting i was waiting for them to say he was one of the one that he was like the one percent oh my god right that would have been terrible for him personally and the family but it also would have been terrible for europe at large mm. because the success for her son convinced mary that variolation needed to be introduced to english society at large mm-hmm. and she would get the chance to introduce it to the english society at large wow sooner than she expected as her husband was recalled to england in 1718 having failed to negotiate an end to the war, bless him. And to add insult to injury, the two sides negotiated their own peace treaty later the same year. Oh, Jesus. Without his help. Oh, God. So he was sent over to stop a war, spent over a year trying, failed, went went back to England and went, there's no no getting those two to settle on anything. And then a letter arrived saying, we've we've sorted it out. He was the very most... Oh, no, I just told everyone it was impossible. Oh, God. I've been bad-mouthing both of the negotiating teams. Oh, I'm oh, never going to no. get another job. That's me. I'm going to be so poor now. Well, I actually, I, I don't know anything else he did. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. is that it? That's, <laughs> that's it. I, I can't speak to it being true, but as far as I know, that was his one chance at being an ambassador, and he blew it. Oh, ambassador. No rochets for you. As as with all new... Um, medical innovations though mary found very few takers for her idea of variolation back in london it is revolting well it wasn't because it was revolting because a lot of medicine in those days was quite revolting Uh, but the doctors back in london they dismissed it as folk practice that herbalists and you know wise women from the villages might do yeah essentially they're like this is this sniffs of witchcraft this we're not using that and they scoffed and they poo-pooed. And then, in 1721, a smallpox epidemic hit England. And by this mm. time, Mary had a daughter oh. who was unvariolated. So she decided to get in touch with her old friend Maitland okay. and perform another variolation on her young daughter. Only this time, she made sure it was heavily publicised and that uh-huh. there were people there observing the practice. Amazing. 
So yeah, this is the second one of her children she's used as a uh, test subject. Yeah. The stunt convinced the upper classes of England that the process might have some merit because you're still in with the royal court this time. Yeah. However, they wanted to be super sure that it worked. And unlike Mary, they weren't willing to use child test subjects. Okay. They were. They totally wanted to use oh, child test subjects. God. Uh, Princess Caroline of Wales, indeed, she wanted to variolate her own children, so she first forced an entire orphanage to undergo the procedure Jesus. to check it was safe. Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was, and she had her children variolated, and she was very happy. And she was thinking, oh, well, this could be a great thing for the rest of us. But when it came time to variolate themselves, they wanted to see how adults reacted to the procedure. Because up to this point, all they'd seen is what it did to children. It's like, well, children are young and strong and they're still developing yeah i want to see what happens to an adult but unfortunately as you know adults have rights so you can't just force a bunch of adults to you undergo can. procedure you can if they're in prison or well, you can't. detained under the mental health act you can't you couldn't even back then but they did use prisoners as part of their solution mm, they tend to but what they did was they decided to offer seven prisoners at Newgate the opportunity to undergo the procedure instead of the sentence that had been passed down by the judge. Right. And as all seven had been sentenced to death by hanging... Oh, my God. Right. They okay. agreed. <laughs> I was going to say, what, are they just... I don't know. Are they in for stealing something? Or, you know, kind of like not a hangable offence? <laughs> this time, stealing was clearly a hangable offence. Oh, right, this okay. was the, the time of the bloody code. So many things were hangable offences okay, at this point in enough. history. Okay, okay. But yeah, given the choice between potential death and really honest to goodness death, mm -hmm. uh, all of them agreed. And every one of them survived the procedure and was released with the added benefit of being immune to the pandemic that was still raging through the city. Which goes to show that there have been throughout history some very, very specific instances where crime does pay. Yes. And this is one of those where mm -hmm. it really paid. Yep. You stole 12 sheep. What happened? They... They vaccinated They me. vaccinated me. And, and set me free. Yeah. I feel great. In fact, I was no eating... No pox for me. I was eating better in Newgate than I have for weeks. I've put on some weight. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling fit and spry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Due in large part to Mary's tenacity... Variolation became an accepted practice in England by the mid-1700s. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it is likely that Mary was responsible for saving millions of lives. Oh, my God. Go, Mary. Mm. Anyway, I would love it if I could end the story there. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, after she returned to England, mm. her own life began to unravel. Oh, Mary. Mm. Her son, Edward, he grew up to be a rebellious sort of boy. Uh, and he kept running away from boarding school. I don't blame him. So she thought, what can I do? And she See, did... everyone glorifies boarding school. You know, you've got your Hogwarts, you've got your original Jennings story, you've got Mallory Towers, you've got the worst witch. You've got loads of instances of boarding schools glamorised and glorified for generations of kids. I think it's a terrible idea and I'd hate it. Mm. That's fine. It's shit. Well, Edward definitely hated it. Mm, and it. I don't blame him. I'm guessing it wasn't Hogwarts. Oh, my stomach today. Sorry, I do apologise. And you know how snobbery is. Even though her granddad was a Marquis, uh, mm -hmm. his granddad was a Marquis mm -hmm. and his dad was an MP mm. slash ambassador mm -hmm. slash businessman mm. slash, slash failed ambassador slash underwear model. Did mm -hmm. I mention that? It's not true, but it'd be great. Um, he, he obviously wasn't 
in with the in crowd and Avid he kept away. Wearer. Yeah. So she decided that the only thing to do with this guy who kept running away from boarding school was to get him a personal tutor and send them out of the country with strict instructions to say he wasn't allowed back until he'd finished his schooling. My God, where's he going? Well, she exiled him, essentially, to the continent. Oh, God. If you can't... (laughs) If you can't behave, you'll have to leave the country. If you can't behave, there's France. Go to it and stay there until you've learned your lesson. I've counted to three. Yeah. (gasps) Is that what happens when you get to three? Yeah, you get sent to France. <laughs> sent to France. <laughs> I have to stay there until you've learnt Latin, Jesus. like your mum did at Jesus. that age. Jesus. Yeah. Well, uh, Edward, he he was sent to France, and then he quickly managed to return without his tutor. God knows what happened to his tutor. Um, and Mary was so angry and apoplectic that they just couldn't get on again. Even though he did settle down after that and became just a normal guy just Edward yeah she just couldn't let it go and they had a very strained relationship wow and learning nothing from this episode with Edward and indeed from her own younger days she then objected to her daughter marrying for love as she thought that the man John Stewart was not well bred enough oh Mary so after all she went through to meet her husband (sighs) and go through that secret letters back and forth well luckily John Stewart managed to win her favour by becoming Prime Minister, which she grudgingly accepted was a good effort to better himself. Okay. At least you tried, John. It'll do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not the House of Lords, but no. you tried. Yeah. I guess that's all I can ask, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, but her estrangement from her children was nothing compared to the estrangement from her husband. Jesus, what did he do? He did nothing that we know of but Mary did something what did she do she fell in love with a Venetian polymath <gasps> many years her junior called Count Francesco Alarotti are you sure with that pronunciation Count Francesco Algarotti Algarotti Count Francesco Algarotti amazing mm. and she was determined to run away to the continent to be with her young lover boy toy mm. okay on the pretext <gasps> of needing to go over to the south of France because she needed a warm climate to recover from an illness. What illness? Just an illness. Oh, oh okay. Just a sniffle. Oh. You know. Oh, mm, Yeah, but back in the day, didn't they just take the waters and took to the well, seaside? There, were various, the there were various things. It was thought that if you were suffering from a, a lung disorder, like a, a pneumonia or something, that it was good to go to a hot, arid climate. Oh, right, okay. Um, Dry your lungs out. Well, no... Um, Sort of the 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 idea of the humours. There were, um, you know, the four different things. Mm-hmm. So there was like blood, phlegm, mm-hmm. uh, the two types of bile, yellow and black. Um, mm. But also things were either hot or cold, or dry or wet. That's mm. that's everything could be put into that. Mm. And if she had a condition like you know a phlegmy sort of yeah. pneumonia, that'd be cold and wet. So the cure would be to go somewhere hot and dry. Okay. Yeah, and I she explained that. this to her husband who went, I understand medicine. Of course you need to go to the south of France, darling. Mm. Are you are you just going for the winter? And she went, yes, I'm just, just going to go for the winter. Uh, so she left England just, the before, just before the winter of 1739. And although her relationship with her young Italian toy boy, Shocker, it petered out by 1742. Uh, she remained out of England in self-imposed exile and never saw her husband again. Mm. They never got divorced because she left under false pretenses. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and yeah, he just carried on like she was going to be coming back at some point, right up until the day he died, because Edward Wortley Montague died in 1761. Mm. And so upon... how long did he not see his wife for? Uh, this was, what, 22 years? So for 22 years he thought, ah, no, no, she'll no. be back. He knew, he he figured out what had happened, but oh, right. okay. he couldn't, in polite society... Oh, right, okay. Say, oh yes, my 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 wife, she's run off with an Italian count. I mean... After those first three years with the Italian count, she spent the better part of 20 years traveling around. She's, pop, you know, the Italian lakes, like Garda mm-hmm, and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She wrote lots of letters from there. The Italians kind of blame her for popularizing the area with British tourists because no one went there except other Italian people. It was like their nice little secret mm-hmm, where they mm-hmm. could go. And all of these people coming to do grand tours, all of these toffs coming over, yeah. they'd be down in like Rome and Florence yeah, and, then, yeah. and they wouldn't, it was like this nice little place and she went and gave the secret away. <gasps> oh, no. She started the tourism trade there, bless her, by a writing about it in such glorifying ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and she went all over Europe. She spent a lot of time in France. So she was almost living her best life as a, a yeah. woman traveller. Yeah. But yeah, as soon as Edward died, and I mean like as soon as she got the letter saying, by the way, your husband's dead, she was off. Mm. Heading back home mm-hmm. to England. Mm-hmm. To oh bloody! Mm-hmm. She arrived in Calais uh, in December 1761, mm-hmm. and she tried to cross the Channel, and there was a massive storm, and she couldn't. Okay. So she set off again and tried to cross the Channel, mm. and there was lots and lots of fog, so it was deemed unsafe, and she couldn't. Okay. And then she tried a third time, and there was another massive storm, and they got out of the harbour, went. Oh no, turned around and went back. But on the fourth time, a full month after she tried the first time, in January 1762, mm-hmm. she made it back. So how do you use those three times as an omen? I was like, no. Well, she was determined because she wanted to see her kids one more time because she was already suffering from cancer. And when she returned, she was only able to enjoy the company of her daughter, who she managed to patch things up with. Mm-hmm. During her exile, they wrote lots of letters to each other discussed a lot of feminist theory um and mary was you know she was involved uh, in a sort of distance way yeah. with the um with the idea of women's emancipation the very first sort of mm-hmm. stirrings of that idea okay um but yeah she only got to spend a few months actually with her daughter and her grandchildren before she died on the 21st of august 1762 so she was in england less than a year oh gosh yeah at the time of her death variolation had become a standard practice however a young Edward Jenner was already 13 and preparing himself for a life of studying both cuckoos and medicine. Mm. And we all know how that turned out. We do. If you don't, we have an episode on it. I Lee suggest you... Episode eight or nine. Okay, mm. then I suggest you check our back catalogue. And you can find out who Edward Jenner was. Yes. And why vaccines are called vaccines. It's the Latin vacca. And if you haven't learned Latin... And poo on you. You're no Mary Wortley Montague. You are not. You are not. Mary's Turkish letters were published posthumously and will go on to inspire generations of female explorers, including your friend and mine, Freya Stark. Ah, Dame Freya Stark. However, it is undoubtedly Mary's championing... Championing? However, it is undoubtedly Mary's championing of variolation that will be remembered as her most important contribution to British history. If you want to read some selected Mary's letters... I do. You can access 
The Selected Letters of Mary Wortley Montague, edited by Robert Halsband, who also gives a good little um, one-chapter snapshot of her life. Amazing. Filling in some of the details I felt were a bit boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can get all of that for free on archive.org. Just type Lady Mary Wortley Montague into the search bar. There's only one person going to come up with a name like that. Amazingly, there are three. No. Of course there aren't. There's one. There's one. There's one. There's (laughs) only one Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And how glad we all are that she's not Lady Clotworthy Skeffington. Oh, too true. (laughs) He died alone, cursing his parents. Forevermore. Nobody wants to marry old Clotworthy. Clotworthy. Are we going to call him Thomas? Are we going to call him Edward? Are we going to call him William? No. No, none of those names. We shall call him Clotworthy. It was either that or Obadiah Dryer. (laughs) Obadiah Dryer. I mean, the thing to remember is that variolation had been slowly, slowly travelling Mm. from China, but it had taken 200 years. So it's it's likely that um, it never would have made it to England and that it would have been uh, what Edward Jenner discovered that essentially, you know, cured... Well, didn't cure for another couple of hundred years, but, Mm. you know, gave us a vaccination against smallpox. But in that window between her sort of seeing it in Turkey and Edward Jenner coming up with his discovery, the amount of Mm. people that were probably saved... Amazing. ...because of that procedure. I mean, you know, sure, for every million people vaccinated, what, 100,000 would have died? No, 10,000 would have died. Right. But compared to what it was killing... Yeah. Yeah, it it would have been a, a, an amazing boon, especially for the lower classes who couldn't do the other things that might protect you from viruses, well, such yes. as isolate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and just general cleanliness, being able to change your clothes regularly. Yeah, washing Wash. facilities, all of those things. You know, yeah. just having the nutritional sort of backups yeah. that you weren't chronically uh, malnourished, because that's that's one of the biggest reasons that poor dropped. They had no defenses left. No, no, their bodies were struggling. They were. Just in general. So there you go. Wow. Aye. Well, well done, Lady Lo- Lady Lily, Lady, Lady Mary. That's it, Lady Mary Wortley Montague.